and welcome to Big Gay Energy. I'm Bree. I'm Theora. And I'm Caitlin. Come along with us while we dive into the fun and nuances of queer media. Representation matters, and we're here to talk about it. Cheers, queers! On today's Big Gay Agenda, we are talking with Sophia Holquist from the talented Drum and Lace. Sophia is a music composer in the film industry and has worked on many projects, including the new Red, White, and Royal Blue movie. Welcome to the podcast, Sophia. Of course, thanks for having me. This is very exciting to get to talk to both of you. Oh, we are so excited to talk to you, too. Uh, by the way, the soundtrack for Red, White, and Royal Blue is like the most beautiful looking thing I've ever seen. It's so oh, pretty. You, you mean the vinyl or like yes. the cover? Yeah, yeah the, the vinyl, vinyl is going to be really good. And there might be another surprise. I don't know if I... Ooh. You know what? I, I'm going to say it because I think um, the fans deserve to know. So, um, but yeah, the vinyl is beautiful. And a lot of people have been asking, it is the Union Jack on the other side. Because the photo oh. only shows the American flag on one side. But obviously the other side has the Union Jack. That um, is so amazing. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, they did a good job. I just approved yeah. things. I wish I could take any credit <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah. But it must be nice to have like the tangible like... You know, I actually, I haven't seen it in person yet. I'm hoping to get it before the general public, but I have a feeling that I'll just be receiving it when everyone else does, um, which I think is in December. At least that's what it says on Amazon when you order it. Um, So not not too much longer. Hopefully fans will still be excited for it. I think so. I'm sure they will be. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect holiday present. Yes. Oh, I wonder if that's why they did it. That is perfect. But that is yeah. good. <laughs> and I couldn't Marketing. believe the other day I saw there's like a full Amazon store. And I was like, I can't believe they haven't said, yeah, they, there's like socks and t-shirts. And I was like, well, I first of all, I was like, wow. Yeah. Second of all, I was like, why haven't they sent me any of it? I'm like, kind yeah. of offended. <laughs> why, where are my red, white, and blue socks? Poured I mean, blood, sweat, and tears into this movie. No, I really did. Well, I did. But no, it, 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 wasn't a, it wasn't a struggle. It was a wonderful experience but yeah i was like i want my socks where are my socks yeah Yeah. i mean anything that comes out you have a right to right (laughs) i mean that's what you think but yeah (laughs) (sighs) all right but before we jump too much into because we obviously want to talk to you about that specific project um for listeners at home that may not be familiar with uh your specific profession um what is a music composer and how how did you get started in the entertainment industry Um, so what I do is essentially I write music for film, television, um, all sorts of media, you know, anything that's sort of, um, music to picture. And, um, I, I really fell into it while going to music college. So I got into college in Boston and, um, I'm originally Italian. I don't sound like it, but so, you know, I went all the way from Italy to Boston, um, to Berklee College of Music. And originally I wanted to be a performer. And, um, I think it was one of those syndromes of like, I was like the big fish in my small kind of city and I got to Berkeley. And of course there were like, I mean, people that were just so talented, like such talented singers, such talented. And, um, I just kind of realized that I just didn't have what it took to like do it professionally. So, um, I was looking around at the majors and I was like, well, I love film and I'd never, and it was one of those clear, like, I'd never thought about that as a career because it wasn't as, like, commonplace. And also it's, like, 
you know, so many career choices you only decide to do when you have a role model and they're just like really weren't, wasn't anyone but like white men scoring movies. So I was like, well, I never even thought about this. So, um, I kind of started doing that and then all of a sudden I had a degree in film scoring. Um, and it took a while. I did a bit of a detour, um, away from it cause I didn't at the time want to move to LA and was completely kind of like against all of that. But, um, I'd say maybe in like 2016, so it's like eight years ago, um, kind of like went back into it um, and started scoring documentaries. And now, you know, it feels like a kind of overnight thing, but it really, it's taken years and years. And, um, and I love what I do. You know, I get to work on a lot of great TV shows and movies, um, also write my own music. So it's, um, it's a really, it's, it's a really great form of art that I'm very glad to have fallen into, I have to say. That's really cool. Yeah. What does your process for composing for film and TV entail? It's it's always a little bit different. So um, there's been times when I've been brought on when they haven't shot the film yet or the TV show, and it's just at a script phase. And at that point, I'm meeting with the director or the showrunner and sort of like writing music um, based on like a feeling and based on our conversations. And then... Um, adapting those themes that we kind of wrote beforehand once there's picture. Um, that's one way that it's been done. Another time it's like I get brought in when they start to edit, um, once they shot the movie. And then, you know, in the case of Red, White and Royal Blue too, they already had like a first cut. So when I got hired, um, they'd already put together the first assembly cut. Um, which I think notoriously is the one that Matthew's been mentioning on, you know, online that was like three hours long, you know, the first assembly cut or whatever. Um, and, um, and to be honest, and I, I, I don't know if this is public knowledge. I don't think it's like a bad thing, but I was actually replacing a composer. So the previous composer had been let go. So they were already kind of deep in the process and I got brought on in December um, but as everyone who's been following the movie, they shot last summer. So, you know, like I was kind of like came in towards the end of the process. Um, but yeah, so usually like once I'm brought on, I'm either sent a script or the movie. And then, you know, the hardest part is the getting started because you just kind of sit at your computer with like a blank session in, you know, the music software that I use. And there's a couple that people use and you just kind of start writing and you just hope for the best. Um, and every time that you get started, it's like, you're like, Am I, can I, can I do this? You know, every time you have to like psych yourself, you'd be like, come on. Cause it, it's like learning to ride a bike all over again every time. But then the moment that you get on, you're like, oh, I know what I'm doing. But at the beginning you're like, it's terrifying. Um, and there's nothing better than like, once you turn that corner and you're like, the director likes it and everyone's kind of on board. And that's like the best feeling when you're kind of like at the beginning of like being in it. Um, and yeah, and then you just keep writing and then record and, you know, it's, 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 for me, it's like very like seamless and it's like, you know, but I, I'm sure people that don't do this profession probably have a thousand questions about it. Um, yeah. I just feel like it's, I couldn't imagine just like sitting there and be like, okay, well, I don't even know what one note to, <laughs> what to put in there. Yeah. I mean, with Red, White and Royal Blue specifically, it was, I felt it was extra challenging because people already loved these characters so much that it was like, how do you do justice by these characters? And like, people already love them so much. And then they, they both come with such like a um, strong background, you know, whether it's like, um, like family background, like 
diverse backgrounds and it's like how do you combine it so that their um, themes can work together and that's something that Matthew and I talked to at the very beginning about how um, they have to have sort of like separate themes but then they have, have to have themed together and I think like the what I sold him on was like you know it'd be cool if then their two themes can actually play at the same time and work yeah. together which ultimately happens in for example like the last cue of the movie called we won um like at the very end um and other bits so it's like their their themes are made are written to be essentially played by two people on the pan at the same time just so it, so that it could represent them like separately and then coming together um so these are like you know those really big considerations which like when you sit down at the beginning and you're like all right let's write themes for these like highly beloved characters um but the feedback from everyone has been extraordinary and I, I see how much people are listening to the soundtrack on Spotify, so I think it worked out. <laughs> oh, it definitely did. Yeah. Um, I have a question, though, since you brought up the, the piano scores. Um, in, mm -hmm. like, the source material, since, like, this is a project that came with, like, a book and then got a film adaptation, just a bunch of source material. Like, music is, is a big part in the book, particularly mm -hmm. with Henry, who likes to play the piano. Was what did that factor in at all with like your instrument choice when scoring mm -hmm. this? A thousand percent. Yeah. I mean, that's why Henry's instrument really is uh, pianos. And there's actually, I feel like maybe I know and it might not be like super obvious, but there's actually a couple different types of pianos being used in the Henry themes uh, and in the Henry cues. Like, for example, um, when he's with Alex and, you know, he says, or else I'll vanish right before they go to Paris. Um, that's actually like a couple, two different pianos playing in different octaves. Um, and ultimately, like, I don't know how it ended up happening, but Alex's instrument is essentially the guitar. And I think it was like a way to pay heritage to, you know, like to pay heritage, but also because he's more like contemporary. And I feel like it was an instrument that worked well with more of like a plucky sound. Um, but yeah, music is a huge, I mean, the music supervisors did such a good job and I know that people are disappointed because, you know, London boys isn't in it and Elton John isn't in it, but like, trust me, the amount of work that they did for like, even just the new year's scene was so many songs, yes. um, that like, I, I feel like you guys should have a music supervisor on because their job is crazy having to like deal with artists and negotiating. I mean, it's, it's wild. So, um, but it, it was, it was hard because the score had to work with the songs right um so it, it had to be like kind of classically inclined enough to like feel like a big romantic score but also contemporary enough to stand up to all the amazing songs um that are in it but but yeah music's really i've come to learn even more so important seeing casey's playlists as well that they've shared um since the movie's been out that's awesome Thank you for the recommendation for a music supervisor. We're always looking for new people and jobs to interview. So yeah. Yeah. we can uh, like showcase people working on these films, but also let the audience know how much work goes into these movies. Because mm -hmm. it's so I mean, much you could more literally, than you think. Literally talk to Maggie and Kristen, who music supervised Red, White, and Royal Blue. I'm sure they'd be thrilled to chat about it. Um, and Maggie awesome. specifically does so many movies, uh, Maggie Phillips. So, oh, Caitlin left us. She went to go get Maggie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, no, she's writing things down. She's getting it done. 
Oh, that's interesting that it would have just cut off. Can you imagine if she can still hear us and you're like, hello? She might be able to, actually. Oh! Could you hear us, Caitlin? Oh, you actually got kicked out. I kicked myself out. (laughs) We thought you were going to get Maggie. I was trying to write down Maggie and who? Maggie and Kristen. If Kristen. you, I can, I can follow up with their names, but if you go on IMDb, um, okay. and you look up, um, you should find their contacts and everything too. Yeah. That's an excellent, do you, and so I assume like, cause like I, in my brain, like composing and, and the music supervising are, are obviously different roles. Do you guys collaborate at all with, um, I guess the pieces of music you're working on for a project or is it more, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty separate in that the only time that there's like an intersection is if, for example, um, I'm working, if they're working on it with an artist on an original song, for example, like this didn't happen in red, white and real blue, but like if I'd have to, you know, if they wanted some parts of the score to be part of like what Vagabond was doing, then that's where the music supervisor would have brought us in together. Um, I mean, it's more just having like somebody in your corner and, um, the two of them, you know, they, they're the ones who brought me onto this project. Cause I worked with oh. Maggie. I think I worked with both of them or maybe it was just Maggie on a movie called Rosalind. Um, Oh yeah. I've that was that. up on um, Hulu, Hulu right? but then was part of the bunch of movies that Disney took down for tax reasons or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah let's, let's just not even go there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, the music supervisors just have this like really big power just because they can kind of talk to the producers and directors and just kind of recommend people that they've worked with that they know will work, uh, that will do a good job. So, um, but yeah, there's not too much intersection. I've never worked on a project where the music supervisor has like necessarily given notes unless the director feels so inexperienced um, where they need help. Um, okay. On Dickinson, we did work with the music supervisor more often, just because I don't know if you guys ever watched that show. Sure. Oh, we have questions about it. Yeah. Given the, yes, uh, actually stupid question for me to ask. Um, but no. on that, you know, there's like in season three, there's a sing along. Um, and there's just like, a, yeah. so that, and then I think it's also in season three, the Billy Eichner jazz thing. So there, there was a oh, lot yeah. more, there was a lot more kind of communication with uh, DeVoe Yates, who's the music supervisor on that. Um, but yeah, but music supervisors generally are just awesome people. You have composed so many amazing things and there's a lot of instruments in it. How many instruments do you play and which is your favorite? Um, so first and foremost, I'm a vocalist. Um, so I use a lot of vocals in most of the scores that I do. And even in scores where you don't hear me like singing, you know, laws and oohs and whatever, there's still sort of like vocals used as pads. Um, and this is the case in Red, White and Royal Blues where you never really hear vocals in like the way that you hear in Dickinson, for example, but it's still there. And I think we are so like a- attuned to the human voice since it's our mode of communication that I think adding layers of vocals just innately like adds kind of like an organic and like a connection to listeners. At least that's my theory. Um, but I do that. And then, you know, a lot of the work that as composers that we do kind of like originates on a keyboard, just because a lot of the instruments that we're playing are like virtual instruments. So they're, you know, they're in the computer. So I'm an okay piano player. I'd say I can like hold my own, but I'm definitely not like, if you put like a Mozart piece in front of me, it's not like I can sight read it. Uh, but I do enough to do this. Um, I'm an awful guitar player. 
I'll say that. And I am married to a guitar player, so kind of like stopped caring about that altogether. <laughs> um, and honestly, the other thing that I guess I'm like decent at is just percussion, percussive stuff. I mean, with a name like Drum and Lace, I kind of have to be, right? Um, so the percussion and just, I guess it's an instrument, but I'm pretty good at like synthesis and like synthesizers and anything that's kind of like electronic based. Um, but I wish I played more. Like I wish I'd played like the saxophone or the trumpet, you know, like something a little bit more like that. And I definitely don't play any strings, um, which is something that I think I'm going to push on my daughter so that then she can help. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we'll see. I mean, I think with what I play, it's enough to then be able to hire friends and f other musicians to then play those instruments that I can't. Um, and as much as it would be great to be like a multi, you know, somebody that can play all instruments, it does actually foster more collaboration to bring in other people. Um, and I think as artists are always so precious about doing everything themselves, but there really is something in like building a community of people that can up because then it's just more people to uplift a project. Right. Um, so, for example, in this latest movie with Red, Red, and Royal Blue, I worked with the London Contemporary Orchestra, who I'd worked with on um, a bunch of stuff in the past, and they're just this incredible ensemble that um, has played anything from, like, Phantom Thread to, um, you know, things for um, Herdis um, or Hildur Steph uh, Guthnadottir, I can never say the name, but she she's, like, one of the only women to have ever won an Oscar, and... I don't know. They just do a lot of really cool stuff. Um, but yeah, so I think the fact that I can't play as many as I wish actually is a good thing in the long run. Now that I, now that I can afford to pay people to do so, I guess. That's true. Then you get different artists kind of like collaborating, like you said, does that lead to any kind of like workshopping when you're trying to like put the piece together or do you come with like the final piece to the collaborators? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's a little bit of both. I think that for a lot of things, um, for other movies, like a horror, I have a horror movie that came out in July um, called Cobweb. And for that one, I had my friend Ro, um, they're an incredible cello player. I had them do a session beforehand where we recorded like some string effects and just kind of things in different keys. And then from there, I was able to take what we recorded and sampled it throughout the score. And then at the very end, once the score was approved, um, I did a remote recording in Macedonia with like a 40 piece ensemble. But like by then everything was like approved and done because it's just, you know, if you're a huge composer, then you can afford to just do these inter interim sort of like string sessions and then change things. But like at the level that I'm at, it's like you want to be sure that everything is just like done. Um, but I do, I love bringing people into the process early because at least it's like, it helps establish kind of like the sound of the film um, in a way. And um, and so I've done that a lot. I feel like Red, White and Royal Blue, I didn't really have much time to just kind of like experiment. It was kind of like a let's go um, thing, which is why also like the piano was a great thing that I could definitely do myself. And then any guitar that was too complicated for me to play, then I actually had my husband who's a guitar player play those parts um so I was able to keep it kind of like in the household which is kind of nice <laughs> so how does music impact a scene oh my goodness um I think in the career that I do I 
the, what, the way I tend to think about it is that if you're watching a movie or you're watching something and the music sticks out, then it's not working. It has like, whereas if you watch a scene and you're like, oh, that was so beautiful, then like all to get all the elements come together, then it's doing the right thing. Um, I think that a lot of the biggest, the, the, the biggest thing that Hollywood doesn't do is that I think sometimes there needs to be more silence. Um, I do think that there's like an overuse of music and I think sometimes it's actually to detriment to the detriment of what you're watching. And it's something I'm very conscious of, but then it's a really hard thing to bring up because as somebody who writes music as a job, you saying, I think this doesn't need music comes off as like you trying to get out, out of like writing stuff. And it's like, it's never that. It's just like, sometimes the scene just doesn't need um, music. But I think, I think it just, it depends. I mean, I think it can just kind of like elevate a scene so much. And I think that that's sort of like what being a film composer entails. You know, you're like trying to essentially amplify and reflect the vision of the director or showrunner and you're trying to do it in a way that feels true to them true to kind of like everything um and oftentimes and i think this is why like a lot of times you know people artists get hired to score but then it's like it doesn't work out and i think it's because artists people that are just artists are so used to um being able to be like this is my thing i'm going to do what works for me whereas like with film composing composing it's very, it's a very humbling experience. It's like, you know, you can, I can write the thing, something that I think is like the best thing in the world, but if it's not serving picture, then it's useless. You know, if the showrunner director who have been living in this script and in this world don't like it, then like, I need to just check my ego and do something that works for the picture, even if it's not like my favorite piece of music. So I think that that's sort of um, also shows how important music is, where it's like, it can really if it's the wrong music, it can kind of just like ruin a really important moment, I think. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, I agree with what you're saying about the overuse of music. Like sometimes I almost feel like less is more in order to mm -hmm. really get that impact that like as the audience member like sweeps you into the scene because music when it's done correctly can really just like transport you into that moment with those characters. And it's, there's nothing like it when that like clicks correctly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and uh, Red, White, and Royal Blue really did that, especially, like, I feel like the the, the romantic element of it, like, the music really helps, like, elevate and enhance that, like, as a watcher, and it's, yeah, you forget you're watching a movie sometimes, it's so yeah. well done. There's there's a lot of parts in Red, White, and Royal Blue where it was really hard to, especially, like, sneak music in slowly, like, without giving anything away, and I mean, I'm assuming anyone who's watching this has hopefully seen the movie, and this isn't, like, a crazy spoiler, but, like, the cue first kiss like the way it comes in is like so so quiet and i think actually yes. in the final mix they might have taken away because there used to be like these pads that kind of lit into it and i think they might have like either muted them or made them so quiet so like you kind of just hear piano notes come in mm -hmm. and, but it's like something like that it's it's so delicate and you have to be so careful because it's like if you come in too strong then like you're misleading or i don't know so it's it's a very delicate um balance with stuff but you know but i'm trying to think if there's any other i mean in good hands you know like the first time they make love like yeah have sex yes. make love. um that one was also that's definitely the cue the music that went through the most revisions um and i think it's probably the scene that went through the most revisions because i think it was very important to matthew obviously to portray that 
in a way that felt authentic and not sensationalist and actually felt like, I mean, I think it ended up more tasteful than heterosex that you see on screen. I think it's so passionate and beautiful and tastefully done and the music had to be the same. So I think, and every time the cut changed, the music had to change, but, um, I think we might've gone to version like seven of that cue, um, by the time we recorded it. Um, which, you know, for big superhero movies, they get to versions like 20, whatever. But for sure. um, the work that I did with this, I think we usually got to like version three or four on things. But this one definitely was um, the most. But, you know, like bad music there would have ruined it. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> An electric totally. guitar comes in. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. I understand the guitar is very Alex, but like at that moment. <laughs> yeah, not, not really. And it's funny, in, in that particular scene... Um, we opted not really for piano. At one point, there's a harp. And it was actually Matthew's idea yes. because he was like, you know, it's it's an in-between of like a piano and a guitar where it's like a plucked instrument, but it's still considered like a keys. So it was kind of like, and that was like, Matthew had a lot of these like little things where like once in a while I'd turn around and be like, huh, like that's a really, and I think he's really music attuned, but then he kept acting like he wasn't. But then he'd call me out on things that I was like, you clearly know music more than you're letting on. Uh, and I still wonder if it's a test. I don't know. It's math. It might be. But, um, but yeah. Definitely pass the tense. <laughs> yes. You, you pass with flying colors. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> with <good>. rainbow colors. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> you keep talking about pads in music. And I just wanted to ask what you mean by that. Yes, actually, I can see how that would not be an easy thing. So uh, pads are essentially, in music, are um, anything that has, like, sustained chords or anything that kind of sounds like it's just kind of like a sustaining kind of, like, pillow to everything. So a lot of the times what you play on a synth, if you're holding down notes, and it's just kind of, like, playing something um, that it literally, it's it's literally like a pillow to music, I feel like. Um I'm trying to think of, of a place where it's like very obvious, maybe in the in the movie that there's, um, but yeah, it's it's essentially just like held notes that um, have like a longer resonance than like a piano, you know, because like a piano that the sound dies out quickly, whereas with the pad, it's like usually held out and it's used a lot, you know, it's it's a synthesizer um, type kind of sound, and you can achieve it with other instruments, but it's usually like. Um, more of like a digital instrument term. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so we we kind of mentioned this a little bit, and you brought it up too, that you, you have worked on Dickinson also, which was mm -hmm. one of our favorite shows. I'm glad you brought it up organically. Um, mm -hmm. And we wanted to know, what was your experience like working on that show? Oh my God, I wish Dickinson could go on forever. It was just yes, such... Do. So do we. <laughs> <sighs> Honestly, I mean, I, I really respect Elena for... Like, the, even from when we got hired, it was always going to be three seasons. It was always going to be, you know, like, the introduction and then essentially, like, the Sioux, the Sioux season and then the Civil War season. It was always going to be that. And it's, like, at, when you're starting on it, you're like, oh, we have two more seasons. Like, whatever, it's fine. But then by the last one, I swear I cannot watch the last episode. I cannot hear the last cue, the last two cues of the third episode without crying. Like, thinking about it makes me cry. Like, it was just, it was such a beautiful experience, and I feel like it's such an underrated show. And I think Apple did a, it's incredible that they did, that they made it. But at the same time, I think 
they weren't expecting it to be as big of a hit maybe or um and i think when people see it in the way it was marketed it was marketed just like as a comedy just because they're you know especially season one has like a lot of slapsticky uh comedy because i think the filmmakers and even musically i think everyone was trying to find their footing which you know i think in season two really works and then season three i think it's just like everything just clicks together um but i think it was just kind of marketed as like something for teenagers to like 20 year olds but instead it's like i think it's just a show for everyone and it's just so beautiful anytime that we saw an episode it was just like the costuming the the scenery the acting i mean I don't know. And it, it was just the most wonderful experience. And I wish that I, every project was a Dickinson and I wish that, um, every fan base was a Dickinson fan base. And, um, I just love the fact that Dickinson fans, like the show Dickinson fans, like made Emily Dickinson's like poems end up in like the New York times bestseller. Cause like with red, white and Royal blue, it's like, it was already kind of in there before Dickinson, Emily Dickinson poems to be back. And like, people are like, but you know, it was just, and, um, I mean, Elena's brilliant. I just, we're both, uh, our birthdays are one day apart. So we're both like super Aquariuses. And I feel like the first time we met, we both like looked at each other and I was like, when's your birthday? And we like totally guessed it. So we're Aquarius sisters and I don't, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I could just keep going about all the things I love about it. And musically, I think with my husband, Ian, we were just able to like really, um, create the sound that um, wouldn't have been possible without the visual and the, the idea of doing music that was contemporary for them. And I think the reason why it works so well is just like Emily's way of thinking was so, you know, so ahead of her time. And I still feel like the kind of openness and the kind of like open mind that her character and like Emily Dickinson must have had is just like, just so be ageless and timeless and beyond anything. So, um, I love that we were able to bring a bit, bit of like a punk influence into her because essentially punk is all about, you know, transgression and, um, and that's, I, I mean, more than anything, it's like with the, the tide, with the theme, uh, the main theme that that's, I think where it personifies it's the, the most Emily thing I think is the main titles of Dickinson. Like to think. I feel like music was, uh, even more important in that show like it was more prevalent mm-hmm. you noticed it more but like it made it even better mm-hmm. so and that one was that super show. thematic i mean the the um yeah. you know the meet me in the orchard like arp arpeggiated thing that like i feel like anytime people heard it all of a sudden it was like you know this was like a sue and emily moment or um there's this one cue that we use in every season but i think it was only on the first season soundtrack called railroad fever and it's kind of like a vocal hocket thing um and it's when it's when they take the railroad to go out to see through through in the in the woods and i think it's season one uh john mulaney um, yeah. out in the cabin He's in season one yeah but that that cue it's like one of those that in retrospect i get people emailing being like i like the version from season two where is it and i was like well uh, put it out um but no i mean it was i think what it did too for just like lgbtq visibility overall um and it's it's i a lot of the things that i work on have kind of like this this like desire to want to like tell these diverse stories which um i think is also why i love what i get to do because i get to like you know whether it's dickinson red white and real blue 
Um, they slash them, which, you know, it's not like the greatest slasher movie of all time, but I think the intention behind it was really, um, great. And yeah, but yeah, I could, I, I mean, I could talk hours just about Dickinson stuff, but did you have any like specific questions or anything? You kind of answered one, but I guess kind of branching off. So like you mentioned that the, the punk influence for Dickinson and, and to like a person who has never seen the show, that seems odd given like Dickinson was like a period piece from like the 1700s. And so in a typical, um, uh, I guess, period piece, since that one was more like contemporary mix, does the, the time period influence how you would compose, like what instrument you might use or like, I guess, style of composition, like normally? Yeah, normally you would. Um, and I feel like I got to do that in Rosalind, which was also like a period piece. But then with that, uh, what ultimately ended up happening is kind of like creating this what was kind of coined by everyone as like Renaissance pop. So like all of the cover songs that were done for that movie um, used actual Renaissance instruments. So like harpsichord, these very specific, like different types of flute, um, the harp. Um, so it's like in that one, it was very important to keep maintain that like sound um, that still was like a Renaissance kind of like sound. Whereas in Dickinson, it was kind of like anytime we tried to go down the route of making it kind of like period appropriate. It was like kind of rejected. So I think it like it was very intentionally not supposed to be that at all, um, which I appreciated because it was fun to experiment. And I think um, the three biggest influences at the beginning of season one for Dickinson was uh, Missy Elliott, The Prodigy and Phoenix. So those were like the three bands artists that kind of like shaped a little bit of like the spectrum of the musical thing um and i think like my vocal added to it then ended up becoming like a huge part of the score obviously um you know as like emily's externalized yeah. like feelings and stuff like that i love that that's so that sounds yeah. so fun to be able to like play with like this i guess two sides of like time periods and artists that's yeah so fun. that's why i wish every project was like dickinson i mean it yeah. was just like so it's so nice when you work on a project and you feel appreciated and i mean i've been lucky that 99 percent of the projects that i've worked on i've felt appreciated and not like i was being told exactly what to do um and i think it's also just the, the kind of music that i do but um but when it starts to happen or when it's like a very there's like very specific studios and production companies that kind of like are notorious for micromanaging music. And you're just like, I don't know if I want to work with you again. And you're just like, eh, that's not fun. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you've worked on so many successful projects. I mean, again, we've been geeking out over Dickinson and Red, White, Roll, Blue. But of all the pieces you've composed, which one are you most proud of? Um, funny enough, I mean... I, I'm proud of everything that I've worked on. I think it's like pride in different, different ways. Like I think that the score that I can't believe that I kind of like pulled off that is in the direction of what I would like to do is um, for the horror movie Cobweb. Just because it's like, it uses string effects and it uses a huge ensemble and it's just, it's so dark. And I think um, the music for that I described kind of like as a dark fairy tale. Um, and, but you know, the genre isn't for everyone. So then it's like, it's very specific music, but in terms of like my favorite score right now, I would maybe have to say that one, 
in terms of like its effect on people and just like the way that it makes me feel listening back to it, I do think it might be Dickinson season three. Um, just because there's like so many pieces in that, that anytime I think about it, I just, it just, it, it's, it's just so powerful, you know, the way that the storytelling works. Um, trying to think if there's other shows. I mean, I, I love what we did for good girls. Cause I thought it was really quirky and weird. Um, but that show was so heavy with needle drops and with songs that it didn't really allow for more than like, honestly, like maybe 10 minutes of score at most per episode. Um, which, you know, was totally the showrunner's choice and, um, and I respect it, but, um, and you know, that one too, we, we were supposed to have more seasons and then they couldn't negotiate with the actors and then the pandemic and then it kind of like just fall, fell apart. Um, but yeah, I think the, the, it's always sort of like the newest project is the one that you're the most proud of because you're pushing yourself to a, a bigger step every time. Um. But yeah, I would say Cobb and Dickinson season three might be my favorites. And then there's also a movie called Summering, which I really like the score, but it's a completely different vibe. I don't know if you guys have heard the music or the, the movie's okay. Um, it did okay. I love the, yeah, it did okay. Um, but the score is like kind of like ambient end of summer vibes. Um, so very appropriate for right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think we just need to do a marathon of all of your uh, work and then yeah, just see real. the difference from each project. Yeah, I mean, all of them are very different. Even even Dickinson and Rosalind have a lot of similarity, similar similarities. But then the fact that Rosalind has like a string ensemble and has these instruments, it's just it's it's all like you can see the through line, but then they're all very different. Um I do think Red, White, and Royal Blue is the most sort of like traditional, um, traditional of the scores that I've done. Just because like the 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 way that the harmonies and the way that the melodies work together had to be something that was like relatable to more people. Just because of the scope yeah. of I think the book and of the project um, is just so much bigger. You know, the the more niche the project, the more weird you can get because you're like, well, this demographic that this movie is for is gonna like this. But for Red, White, and Royal Blue, where, where the ages are, I mean, it's rated R, but really I would call it like four, f 14, 15 to, you know, 99, 103, since Iris Apfel is 102. So like, just whatever, <laughs> like the whole, so when you're doing that, it just has to appeal, like, um, in, you know, theoretically, the, the music just needs to appeal to more people, which is why, like, I think it's the more traditional of scores. Um, and yeah, and it, but I, but it's fun to have gone to do that too, because then it's like, you get to work on like beautiful, beautiful sweeping, um, pieces like the museum, um, yes. score, which is my personal favorite. And I guess it's Matthew's favorite too. Cause when we were trying to decide which track to kind of like push to Spotify, that's the one that I think we both decided on. Um, but yeah, so they're all different. They're all different babies. <laughs> And they're babies to be proud of. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Sophia, it has been an absolute delight getting to know you better and just to hear about all of your amazing projects. We now have a new Spotify list to like listen to after this is over. Thank you very much. Um, uh, but before we sign off, um, do you have any final words for the listeners at home? Um, I mean, right now with everything that's happening in Hollywood, you know, with the writer strike, actor strike, um, 
I don't know. I think it's really important for people to support filmmaking and to um, still go and like watch movies. And I don't know. I feel like um, I hope things come back soon. I don't. I don't necessarily have any tips. I just have like I stand in solidarity with the, with the actors and the writers and hope that uh, the future of filmmaking can be fair for everyone, um, including composers. Um, and I don't know. I just. I think there's so much great cinema that's still left to be made um, and so many voices that still haven't been heard. And I think we're just at the beginning of allowing and not even allowing, but like just being okay with ev anyone's perspective to be heard um, in film and everything. But um, and yeah, if anyone, ha if you know, if you have any follow up questions, if anyone ever needs to get in touch with me, I'm pretty um, accessible on social media. So that's what I usually try to tell people if anyone has any pressing questions about stuff. Yes, please go follow Sophia on all the social media things. And if for some reason you haven't watched or listened to the Red, White and Royal Blue soundtrack, Rosalind Dickinson, all of them, please go check them out. We definitely will be doing that after this. Um, so thank you to everybody listening. Thank you again, Sophia. Um, until next time, everybody, hydrate for lesbian Jesus and gay it up all over the place. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 And with that, we've been Big Gay Energy. If you like this episode, check out all our other episodes right here on YouTube. Please like, leave a comment below, and subscribe for more amazing super gay content. If you'd like to support us, check out our merch store or join our Patreon for early access to episodes, exclusive content, and so much more. And with that, we've been Big Gay Energy. If you like this episode, check out all our other episodes on whatever you're using to listen right now. If you're listening on Apple, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review, no matter how brief. It helps us get into Apple's algorithm to reach a wider audience. Please feel free to reach out to us. We would love to hear from you about everything and anything. You can find us on all the social medias at Big Gay Energy Pod. Or email us at biggayenergypod at gmail.com. If you'd like to make friends with other queer media-loving people, reach out to us to join our Discord server. If you'd like to support us, check out our merch store or join our Patreon for early access to episodes, exclusive content, and so much more. Until next time, stay safe and hydrate for Lesbian Jesus.